Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And I'm Stephen Main, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey.com, shareholder advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And we are, and we are the, the, Money the Money Cafe. Cafe. Indeed we are. And um, so, Stephen, there's a few results this morning. Take us through them. Okay, so uh, Simic, the old Leighton Holdings, the biggest, Australia's biggest construction company, reckon they've made $402 million. Reckon Sheffer- they've made. Reckon they've made. Well, you, you, I'm looking you, you for where, so? where are the Westgate Tunnel uh, write-offs. Thing with these massive construction companies is, you know, there's so much contract variation, court cases, who's paying for blowouts. What actually is really statutory profit on a $40 billion pipeline is often hard to read. Plus, they do, um, you know, Lex Greensill style factoring with their finances. So Lex Greensill style factoring. Yeah, they do all that sort of stuff. So, but they're saying they've made 402 million for the I calendar don't year. A, I don't want you to get a suit here, mate. Well, no, they're run by the Spanish, uh, aggressive Spanish outfit. And remember, I remember last year's AGM, I was up to about question 10 and the Spanish chairman said, Stephen, why don't we just meet for coffee? <laughs> Did he? <laughs> that was quite good. So, and they're tipping a forecast Did next you meet year. him for coffee? Not yet. I'll, I'll meet him at the AGM this year. Um, tipping 420 to 460 million next year. So they're basically steady state and the shares are down 1.67%. AGL. Shares are up two and a half percent. They might, maybe they've hit the bottom, and they claim to have made five hundred and fifty million in the half year. So all the write downs are through, and demerging their toxic belching power station division should happen sometime later this year. It's going to be called Excel, is that right? Yeah, A double C E L Excel. And my prediction is Mike Cannon Brooks will take it and shut them all down. He'll buy it and close the whole lot down. Mike Cannon Brooks will take it. What do you mean? Two, two, three billion dollar ESG investment. He'll he'll buy because this thing's going to be so hated. The biggest belching, you know, brown coal, and and what he's going to rip up two or three billion dollars. I think greatest way to get our emissions down is to shut down the AGL uh, belching uh, coal fired power portfolio. So if he's worth twenty billion, just putting ten percent of his net worth into that's a a sensible ESG investment. (laughs) Moving right along. AMP. He is not going to do that, Stephen. <laughs> oh, I mean, no. you know, he, he, good. He's a good man. He right? is a good man. He's, but a good he's man. not that good. He's not that good. <laughs> That's right. So, now, AMP's had a two hundred and fifty million dollar loss yet again. The greatest uh, capital destroyer in financial services history. Shares up five percent to one hundred and six. Uh, market looking at the green shoots of a uh, little bit of growth in uh, banking and home loans and stuff like that. And Mervac, I thought the shares would be the up. The emphasis on a little bit. A little bit, yeah, that's right. Uh, with Mervac, shares down 4 cents to 257. I thought they'd be up there. Profit was up 44% to 565 million. If you're a good developer, it's impossible not to make money in this market of easy credit and booming house prices. I should note that we're actually outside the Money Cafe this week because uh, it, the inside was full and uh, someone just took their bins out. <laughs> so. Could be a bit of extraneous noise, cars, trucks going past, but here we are. Uh, it's not. It's not a bad day. It's overcast, but uh, quite. Twenty-three pleasant. degrees in Melbourne. Degrees, seat of Kuyong. In the seat of Kuyong. Hundred days to go till Josh faces his date with destiny with Monique Ryan here in. Uh, Kuyong. Exactly. I only saw the one Josh sign driving here today, and I saw one Monique Ryan sign. So. I think you might see more Josh Josh yeah. Frydenberg signs as the uh, weeks. Well, he's by. bought every available billboard space, Has and he? so Monique he's monopolising that. So Monique's relying on on core flutes in front of houses, people power stuff. I've bumped into Monique a couple of times in the street, you know, pressing the flesh. It's been uh, she's she's gonna, she's out there. Doing, yeah, doing she's the working work. hard. I do agree with. Uh, I never bump into Josh. No. Glenferry Road. No. No. Well. Uh, 
I, he did launch a book, though, which was a good night a couple of years back. Um, I thought Kieran Gilbert's comment on Talking Finance this week was interesting. He reckons that uh, uh, that uh, Tim Wilson's in bigger trouble in Goldstein. Even though his uh, margin's bigger. His margin's bigger, but I agree. There's just far less to like about Tim Wilson as an MP. I mean, you look at Josh, and he's a future Prime Minister, and he's just obviously a very effective politician on his feet. But why would you save Tim Wilson? I mean... He's gay, and he hasn't even voted with the other moderates in this same-sex stuff overnight. What's he? What's he offering to the Goldstein people no, that's I, any different to anyone else? I, I'm sure I'm with you. I mean, Josh's problem is not himself so much; it's his boss. Yeah, correct. But I said, no, I say that Josh knows he's doing the wrong thing. His boss and Dutton think they're doing the right thing. That's why I don't like Josh. Is he just? I mean, these are tax on proxy advisors at the moment. Yeah, we'll talk about that. So they're in the Senate at the moment, right right, now, as we speak. Right now, the the disallowance motion by Rex Patrick is. So why are they going after proxy advisors? uh, I think it's just revenge from Josh because he didn't like the ownership matters work that exposed the thirty-eight billion dollars of wasted money on JobKeeper. And then uh, Arnold Block Liebler, which is very close to Josh, they gave him $400,000 worth of free legal advice when his citizenship was challenged. For years, they've been campaigning to regulate proxy advisors because they give some of their governance-challenged clients a hard time, like Solly Lou and Jerry Harvey and the old Slater and Gordon and Freedom Foods and Retail so, Food Group. So, so will, this, will this bill actually uh, kneecap them? Oh, it has. It's already started. So if you look at the Stock Exchange announcements... Technology One, a colourful Brisbane-based company with an f- aggressive founder chair, they put out a stock exchange announcement yesterday aggressively attacking proxy advisors, ownership matters and Axie, pointing out errors in their report. Because under the law, which came into place on Monday, the proxy advisors all had to email their reports to the company at the same time it went to the paying subscribers. And then the company got the report and has launched this big attack and put it on the ASX announcements platform. So the government has taken away the, the copyright between private contractors. A private research firm who writes a private report for an institutional investor is now forced by the government to give it to the company. And if they don't, they get fined $11 million and they go broke. So it's just a disgrace. And uh, the Senate is going down to the wire probably in the next half an hour. And I, I won't predict because by the time this is public, it'll be known. But... Hopefully, uh, it'll go down and be never talked about again because it's such a stupid piece of public policy and he should have been brave enough to do it by legislation, not regulation on the Friday before Christmas. Yeah, all right. So, uh, we were going to talk about the results first. I went, we'll finish talking about the results and uh, just briefly on CBA, what's your view about Commonwealth Bank's results yesterday? Well, fantastic result. You know, the most benign credit environment in history. I mean, just uh, I can't believe they're doing another buyback, though. I mean, they've just done a $6 billion buyback, and now they're doing a $2 billion on-market buyback when they've borrowed $51 billion off the Reserve Bank at 0.1% for three. Is this idea of government bailouts, and then you just keep showering your shareholders with buybacks? If, if they're still claiming they've got $4 billion of excess capital, repay the money back to the Reserve Bank and be proudly not on the teat of the government. You know, I really just find that... I mean, you look at it... I've got some numbers here. So the Commonwealth Bank's market cap today is $170 billion, and they've borrowed $51 billion from the Reserve Bank. That's 30% of their market value. NAB's market value is $92 billion. They've borrowed $32 billion off the Reserve Bank. Westpac's $82 billion. They've borrowed $30 billion. That's 36%. And ANZ's $77 billion. They've borrowed $20 billion. Macquarie, at least, their market cap's $76 billion. They've only borrowed 113 billion. That's only 15%. 
So I just don't like government bailouts of banks and then massive showering of shareholders with uh, buybacks and excessive dividends and things like that. Fair enough. And lastly on that, the, I love the fact that the loan book is now $849 billion and the gross margin shrunk by 17 basis points to 192 basis points. So it just goes to show you can have a very skinny margin, but if you're running what Don Argus used to call a giant building society, and that's what the Commonwealth Bank is now with 606 billion of housing loans on an $849 billion loan book, that's 71.3% of their loan book is housing. And they've, least, also got, they've also got $317 billion sitting in transaction accounts. Up 68%. Up 68%. Can and, you believe it? And that, so that's transaction accounts and term, and, uh, I mean, and, the, and the deposits were up 9.5% and the half. Yeah. So the system is awash with government printed cash. Yeah. Um, and and they're, just, they're making a fortune. The property well, market's out of control. You know, it's just, I just think it's just, I can't believe we haven't increased interest rates already. Thank God they've turned off the printing tab. It's just reckless with risking inflation and housing bubbles and all this sort of stuff. Okay, so um, uh, just we need to get moving on to questions because there's so many of them. So remember, I'll there's come back to Magellan at the end. No, no, let's talk, just briefly talk about Magellan now. Well, um, I'm, I'm, ha- I'm happy with the changes. I think it's, it's the right package all up to get rid of uh, uh, Hamish Douglas. I think he should be permanently out, not, not just on mega- medical leave. And Chris Mackay is a good guy, and I like the idea of putting him back in charge. And I like the idea of having a genuinely independent chair in in the other Hamish. Um, but he's too busy, the other Hamish, because he's also chair of REA. Uh, um, this is Hamish McLennan. yeah. He's chairman of Rugby Australia, HT&E, REA, and now Magellan. That's just ridiculous. So I think now that Gonski's been toft, tossed out of a job at um, Sydney airports, I think they should slot Gonski in as the credible independent turnaround chair and let Hamish be, uh, McLennan be deputy chair and, and never let Hamish, the other Douglas, back in the door because it's been a shocker. <laughs> well, <laughs> but the thing is, Magellan is Hamish Douglas, or has been, in terms of, no, no, in terms of the public perception and the, in particular the relationship with the financial advisors, which has been the thing that made them so successful. It's very controversial, though, because the clients have lost a lot of money. Sure. And I don't like this idea of someone who's a marketing guru who builds up relationships with conflicted financial advisors. No, no who, I, I agree with you. I this don't is like your it whole either, thing. You've hated it for a decade. Sure, absolutely. I hate it. But, the, but you know, you've you got to wonder whether Magellan's got a, much of a future now. Well, uh, it, there's, there's some I mean, it's, just it's still $80, it's just $90 billion. Dollars. It's just another fund manager. It always was just a fund manager. Exactly. But it pretended it was Warren Buffett and it pretended it had magic, which it didn't have. Precisely. It was just, they were human like everyone else. Yeah. So now they should be normally governed, not with stupid things like director loan schemes that compromise the independence of the directors, $10 million insurance payouts if the founder gets crook. You know, it just, you know, it's been an absolute hot mess of governance and now it's been a shocker for shareholders. It's, it's but, such a, it's such a um, uh, clear example of key, uh, key person risk and, and how, uh, how not to handle it. I agree with that. But I, the funds management industry, more than any other sector, except for footy, you know, sporting stars and Russell Crowe type film stars, is has key man issues because you can just move the dial so much on performance. Sure. And, uh, the, and the money's so hot, it just follows the performance. So if all of a sudden you've got three years track record, suddenly you get swamped and, and then you, you hang on to the cash until you've had two or three years of shocking performance and that's where mm. Hamish is at in the cycle. 
Okay, so um, you can read the first question today. Okay. G'day, Alan. Big fan of the pod. It'd be great to hear your thoughts on Avita Medical. You've been a long-time fan of the company's management and its business. However, it's done nothing but sink like a stone for the past year or so. What's going on? Also, it's 2022, and I think the year of the tiger should bring it, bring with it a change of show name. A few suggestions include Alan Hour or Drinking the Coal Aid. Keep up the great work and long live the cafe. I don't think we're going to change the name of the uh, Money Cafe. I mean, I was thinking maybe we could change it to the Short Straw, since that's where we meet. Only if they pay for the naming rights. Ah, fair enough. They're not going to do that, though. No. Yeah, the Money Cafe, profiting from the Short Straw. Because normally taking the Short Straw is where you get into trouble, whereas we're hopefully avoiding trouble for listeners. Yes. I've preferred it since you've moved from South Bank, though. It's much closer to home. So since you, since you divorced News Corp and started competing with the same name, I think you're doing better. And it's interesting that both of you are hanging on to the old name, isn't it? It is. Why don't you have a legal fight it's, and sort it out? Well, it's pathetic, isn't it, really? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it I is mean, pathetic, but I only listen to yours. Nobody wanted a legal fight. You know. Certainly, so certainly nice. InvestSmart, the owner of Eureka Report, did not want to take on Rupert Murdoch. News Corp. No, that's right. That's right. But you haven't, had a <laughs> Funny cease, that. you haven't had a cease and desist stop using our name. No, no there, was an agreement that, there was an agreement that we would both use the name. Okay. All right. Well, said, don't okay. break. You might get it sued a... for stop using the name because they get the beneficial marketing benefit. <laughs> oh, that's of... right. Exactly. So, uh, as for Avita Medical, look um, – I am. I have been a fan. I am a long-term fan of the company. I think that the product is fantastic. Obviously, it's um, oh, what's her name? Fiona. Um, God, now it's, the surname's gone out of my head. Stanley. Uh, the, the the former Australian of the yeah, Year. Fiona, invented, Fiona the, the Burns expert from Perth. Yeah, Fiona, Dr. Invented, Fiona Stanley. Anyway, anyway, she invented this this spray on skin, and Vita's doing it, and I think it's. Nicely run company. What happened was what what's going on. What happened was that it got overvalued. Everyone got too excited. Well, the stock went from a dollar to sixteen dollars in about two years, and now it's back to two dollars sixty nine. Exactly. I mean, have we seen another roller coaster like that? No, not many. <laughs> not, not many. Often. But it may be two dollars sixty nine is what it should be. Yeah. If I only mean, it just gone there steadily from a dollar rather than going all the way to sixteen. Precisely. Don't that'd be uh, that'd be better. I mean, look. Um, yeah, and of course, I said. I said publicly that I thought it was a terrific company when it was around about $16. Oh, no. So, so the other reason it's fallen so much is the cola kiss of death. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, no, but look, I think, uh, Greg, we need to get them back um, for an interview. All right? What? Oh, Fiona. Fiona what? Wood, of course Fiona it is. Wood. Fiona, Fiona Wood. Fiona Wood. Yeah. Come Fiona on. Fiona Wood, yeah. <laughs> How can we not? Yeah, get her back that? on. Get her, No, not her. She doesn't run the business. So we need to get the bloke who runs it. Mm. Next know, question. Sure it is a bloke. Chris says, Dear Alan and Stephen. Oh, this is long. Do I have to read it all? Just the club of which I'm a member, according to his 2021 annual report, is not publicly accountable. It is a company limited by guarantee and has no share capital. Uh, there are only a handful of long-serving directors. Nowhere, near, nowhere in its annual report does it mention the director's remuneration. Is there anything stopping directors of such clubs paying themselves salaries of whatever they want? At general meetings, there's apparently only life members, of which there is only a few, who are allowed to vote on a special resolution. Apart from my scepticism of the above situation, is the club's recent renovation, of which members can be experimentally ploughed, blah, 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 all that has happened in the, in the nice lounge area where I used to socialise has been removed and replaced by even more poker machines. It's a sad situation. Anyway, your thoughts about those undisclosed director's salaries. Stephen. Okay, so look, I've had quite a look at... Uh 
Pokies Clubs. This sounds like a big NRL club. The NRL is basically a wholly owned subsidiary of the Pokies manufacturers. Um, Pokies Clubs are appallingly governed by my experience. They don't disclose much at all. Directors get all sorts of undisclosed perks, such as free meals, parking, tickets, season tickets, etc., etc. If you're going to find out about any cash fees they're getting, it'll often be in the band system grouped in with the CEO's pay, you know. So it is just appalling. Like the RSL clubs in, in Victoria, there's 50 RSL pokies clubs that collectively pay their directors about a million a year in emoluments, yet the 200 non-pokies uh, RSL sub-licenses in Victoria, they're all run by volunteers and they get paid nothing. So the pokies industry have a lot of useful idiots who sit on boards and basically protect them, pretend their community. At the end of the day, they're just running a predatory, addictive product, which is fleecing $14 billion a year from Australians. And, you know, at least I'm pleased the AFL, Collingwood's got out, Melbourne's got out, North Melbourne got out, Geelong got out. There's only a few. Essendon has not. Essendon refuses to get out of their Windy Hill pokies oh, or the Melton Country Club. That's two I'm council leases too. That's I'm two, ashamed of them. Two councils are leasing to Essendon Footy Club. And uh, so those who can sell freehold get out, and Collingwood and Melbourne each made more than $10 million getting out. Those that are on leasehold, it's harder to exit. So Richmond, my club, have got a lease out, leasehold out in Mont Turner, and they say to me, well, we make two hundred grand a year out of this. If we walk away, we just lose 200000 We asked the AFL to give us 800000 in compo to walk away, and they refused. So we're still in it. Anyway, but uh, I, one, one thing on the pokies, I was very disappointed to see the Cormac Foundation, which owns about $100 million worth of shares on behalf of the Liberal Party, John Howard's on the board. They emailed me last week and said that they have decided not to sell their Endeavour Group shares, which they received after the pokies demerger by Woolworths. So I was very disappointed that a lot of people have sold out of Endeavour, you know, like AFIC, you know, so we don't want to be in a gambling. Yet the Liberal Party, John Howard, have said, we don't mind continuing to own shares in the largest operator of poker machines in Australia, Endeavour Group, with their 12,500 machines fleecing $1.5 billion a year from gamblers. So if you're a Woolies shareholder and you've picked up Endeavour and it's just sitting there, my advice is to divest. Dan says, G'day, Alan. Last week your guest suggested that perhaps the market has underestimated the RBA's willingness to live with low rates of inflation. If he was right, do you think people might turn to property as an inflation hedge? Meaning this in real estate boom is far from over. I think that's a long bow, Dan. I don't think... Um, well, was it my turn to read it? No, you've, you've already read it, so we can't unread it, Alan. You I can't, can't unread it. Well... Hang on, this truck's going to go past. In, an- in answering that question... Yes. Which is a very go. good question. I've, I've never seen a property boom like this one. Do you see PEXA processed $688 billion in property transactions in 2021, up 58%. Pexas is an electronic uh, property conveyancing transactions platform. It's just listed. Macquarie made a mozza out of it, links involved, et cetera, et cetera. So I think people are are smart to to cash out. So I think the smart play at the moment is to get out of your property and put the money in the bank because we're in such a crazy bubble. And I just can't believe the Reserve Bank haven't jacked up interest rates. There's, there's no reason why. The rest of the world's moving on it and our guys are not. And I reckon it's because the board is being political, not wanting to upset the government going into the election. And I think that's just ridiculous. I, I, mean, I hate to be pedantic, but I think the RBA uh, is definitely willing to live with low levels of inflation. I mean, it doesn't want to live with high levels of inflation. And I don't think we will have high levels of inflation. 
particularly. I mean, I, you know, I think, yeah, okay, the Reserve Bank's forecasting that inflation will go to 3% and then back down to 25 or 2 and 3 quarters. Well, yeah, okay, that's not a big deal. That's fine. Yeah, but interest rates, I think it's going to go higher than that. I think the lived experience out there in the business world is inflation is much higher than, than, than that and it doesn't pick up things like property. So I think that they've they've let us down by not sending a signal and we've now got the world's most indebted households and everyone just thinks this easy money is going to go on forever and it shouldn't. So I think disappointed in the so-called independent reserve bank. You're a for hard not- man, Stephen. Now you better read this next one, Alan. I will. I've got so an we stay on our we stay on our yes. proper cycle. I recently requested this is Luke. I recently requested twenty five thousand dollars worth of MAF, which is, stands for M A Financial, which used to be Molus, in a SPP. It was thirty million oversubscribed, so they doubled the offering to twenty million. Um, I ended up uh, ended up with three thousand six hundred worth of shares for the SPP of at seven seventy five. This is a disgrace when we get less than fifth, a fifth of the shares requested, but the institution's locked in $100 million worth at $7.75. Stephen, can you give them a serve for me, please? Uh, well, Luke, I hope you're a Eureka subscriber because I wrote about this in my column behind the paywall on uh, Monday, and this podcast is free to everyone. But uh, it is a shocker. I applied for $14,000 worth of uh, new Moller shares, and I received seven shares for $54.25 and still haven't got my refund. The allocation ratio in the scaleback was one share for every 3.42 shares that you owned with no minimum. So I'm saying, Luke, that you must have started off with about $14,000 worth of shares. This highlights how the SPPs are just a sop to retail investors after the main game of the institutional placement. We're just an afterthought. You know, oh, we'll give you $10 million, says Mollus, after they've raised $100 million from Instos. Oh my gosh, we got flooded with applications. Where, we, where did that come from when 45 million comes through the door? And then the directors will sit there and say, well, we don't need this money. It's just retail. We'll give them a little bit more. So they doubled it from 10 to 20 million. And then they still scaled back 25 million and disappointed 90% of the applicants because you had to own more than $117,000 worth of shares to receive the full 30,000. So even one of the directors, Simon Kelly, got scaled back to 22000 because he only owned $10,000 worth of shares. Serves him right. So the directors had a conflict of interest here because when you scale back, you can either do scale back by size of application. That helps the gamers of the system like me if everyone gets ten grand, Or you can do it by size of holding and that helps the millionaires. The bigger the shareholding, the more you get. Or you can do a hybrid, which is everyone gets five grand, and then you have a scaled model. Uh, but the simplest thing is just to accept the lot. And Macquarie, which Mollus is trying to emulate, have done seven SPPs since they listed. They've never set a cap. They've never scaled one back. So to Andrew Pridham and Jeffrey Baum, the chair and the CEO, if you want to be Macquarie, don't scale back an SPP and annoy 90% of your shareholders. But I am amazed that they got 65% of their shareholders to take up the offer. I've never seen a two-thirds participation rate in an SPP. And that says to me that the vast majority of the shareholders are the smart staff who know when an offer's in the money, have flooded the company with shares, and so they've scaled back their own staff here, which, again, is stupid. And I suspect they've done it just because they don't want to let me make a, a quick $1,000 windfall because they don't like me turning up at the AGM. So I often find some of these scalebacks are driven by petty, pedantic... Against you. ...and other... And other gamers of the system who sit like on market book builds you know they're people who have now produced industrial scale 
I own one shares and I apply for the SPP. So they would have thrown a few million at the offer and the board would have said, oh, there's 300 clients of on-market book builders here. They all own one share. They'll all, let's scale them all to nothing. And that's what they've done. And they've annoyed everyone in the process. Chris, uh, now your turn this time. Okay, Chris. So the Mollus AGM is coming up. And I asked 22 questions last year, and I'll be going again this year. Don't worry about that. Last week, your guest suggested that perhaps the market has underestimated the RBA's willingness to... No, 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 no. We're talking Chris. I did that. The RBA's... Chris says... Oh, goodness me. Chris is a, Chris pod- is a junior civil engineer. Oh, this is, this is terrible to be asked. This, the junior civil engineer says, Your podcast has really inspired me to follow my passion of finance and economics. As a result, I'm a junior civil engineer and looking to jump across... Are you able to provide career advice? And also, could you get Julian McCormack from Platinum on the podcast? So listen, Julian, uh, Chris, sorry. Listen, Chris, we need people building bridges, not more people doing finance. Christ. In local government, we've got a crisis of a lack of engineers. We need engineers. Don't Stick with engineering. Your job. You Chris, put six years of education. Your parents would be appalled if you suddenly become some screen jockey, oh. speculator, investing in cryptocurrencies yeah, or something. But, you know, or a financial advisor, God forbid. Ask for a pay rise. It's the best time to ever. We're losing all our engineers to the state government because they're in councils because they're just spending like drunken sailors. So Ask your boss for a pay rise. Tell him you send this email to your boss. I'm thinking of going into finance. Pay me more to keep me in engineering, and he'll probably say yes. Yeah, I say he because most bosses in engineering are he's. But, but also, uh, don't you, quit you, your job. And Chris, you're doing something important yeah. and worthwhile. Make lots of money as an engineer, and then retire and become a full-time investor <laughs> exactly. when you're 50. Don't retire at 23 and become a jockey. Alan, you're next. Duncan, great, great. Duncan says great answers to Oscar's question about where to start as a beginner investing. Important addition: learn early what style of investing suits you as an individual. Are you a value investor trawling through annual reports, someone who likes fast grow, growing tech, or someone who likes wiggly charts? Well, I like wiggly charts. Oscar should search for stock, Stockopedia forensic investment analysis on Google and watch the last eight minutes of the video that appears. Uh, also. Re-mentors, I think it's better to find keen investors who to have un- ongoing on conversations with. Join some Facebook groups related to stocks. Add some valuable comments about companies you like. Many of us end up with private Facebook messenger chats where we talk about stocks of interest on an ongoing basis. We even head out for steak nights, AGM and investor days. Well, that's fantastic. Well, I've got a, Duncan, uh, I'm going to do a plug for the Australian Shareholders Association here because on Tuesday I was at the Manningham branch meeting and that was 30 of us all sitting around in the clubhouse of the old abandoned Kunara Tennis Club in Boleyn for two hours talking about stocks. And then we all go to lunch and I don't usually go to the lunch because it's at the local Manningham Club, which is a pokies club, but most of them have this lovely pensioner discount lunch and they, it's, a, it's, a, it's 10 a.m. until effectively 2 p.m. on the second Tuesday of every month. And the ASA has 50 of these branches all over the country with monthly meetings, sometimes with guest speakers, sometimes just sitting around having a chat. And the fact that a 1,000 of the 5,000 members are choosing to engage like this shows that a lot of people are like you, just that most of the ASA's members are old. And it sounds like you, you, you've you used Facebook to hook up with some younger people. And that's probably good too. But uh, so Nothing just, better than talking to people about shares who are not trying to flog you something like some conflicted financial planner. So does the ASA have steak nights? 
Well, we have an evening night. Every once a night we go to the pub in South Melbourne and you have an evening speak, you have a dinner dinner first and then you go upstairs and you listen to the evening speaker. So you yeah, could have a steak? It's literally, yeah, it's literally a pub night. And then you have a you have one in the city, a, a monthly speaker in the city as well. So, yeah, it's a great way to, to socialise and combine investing with socialising. Okay, I'm next. So uh, this is for you, Alan. I'm a farmer from Queensland, Phil, and feel the RBA are not reading the signs in the broader economy and feel they must lift rates. Inflation is out of control in our costs at the moment. Examples, urea has gone from 600 a tonne to 1,500 a tonne in a year. Glyphosate's gone from 450 to 1150. Tyres are up 20% in seven months and steel has gone up 100% in 12 months. I know we are part of the world economy with regards to some of these costs. But with local interest rates so low and ag land prices going up so fast, as with housing, aren't we setting ourselves up for failure? Farmers expanding now will then have to repay more capital and invest interest in the future. There's also a problem with the RBA inflation range being set off CPI, not inflation in the broader economy. I'm not comfortable with your assumption that 5% inflation is okay. Having felt the repercussions of inflation for the first time in my business life, it's not great. Wouldn't it be smarter for the RBA to move now rather than wait? And I love your podcast. Uh, uh, yes, well, I, I, look, I had an interview on Talking Finance yesterday with Gareth Ed of the Commonwealth Bank's Economics Department. He says um, that uh, the question of w- uh, at what point interest rates will stop, whether they, uh, how high interest rates go, depends on how early the RBA gets going. So in his view, uh, the earlier they start the lower the interest rates will be able to stop, uh, which sounds correct to me. Um, so, yeah, look, I think there's a case for the RBA to get going early, just getting it, get it from 0.1 to 0.25 now, perhaps next month. Um, that isn't what they're going to do, but I think there's a good case for that. And that was a great addition of Talking Finance, I must say, um, Alan, and I agree that get moving now, and, and Gareth's comment was that it'll settle at one and a half, no one's going to die at one and a half percent official interest rates. No. Let's just get going, get there. It's not going to go back to seventeen percent, but point one is stupid. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, I do think that five percent, five percent inflation is not going to be the end of the world. Still going up one hundred percent in twelve months—that's that's a lot. That isn't five percent inflation. Mm. Um, but mind you, well, I don't know what. I mean, putting interest rates up is probably not going to do anything to the steel price. Or, or change supply chain no, crisis issues. No. We've got to get people back into the country for, for labour, to short the labour issues and, and make sure that trade with China remains open so that we get that downward pressure from, from cheap manufacturing. But there's a, there's a world scramble for goods at the moment because of all this uh, money printing and because people can't spend money, money on services. Yeah. And so we need to get the services goods spending um, uh, back into equilibrium. Uh, Luke says, it's good to be back with you after the split the great split. I only just realised that you still had a podcast going on and not just James. Well, yes. Come on. Now, although I'm sick of all this incessant interest rate chat, I do have a question regarding it. I've heard conflicting theories on whether interest rates are good or bad for banks and their performance and stock price. Will the big five benefit or be hurt by rising rates with regards to A, their profit and B, their share price? Good question, Luke. Yeah, Um, look, interesting comment in the CBA result is their margin did fall from by 17 basis points to 192, which is near a historic low. So that means if they're paying an average of 2% for deposits, they're lending it out at an average of 3.92. But the comment was that for every 25 basis point lift in official rates, 
their margins should rise by four basis points. So that means that rises in official interest rates at the gross margin level are good for bank profits, but the higher you go, then you start running into bad debts because businesses are going broke and falling asset prices. So you, you don't want to go interest rates to 10% because it's going to increase bank margins because you're going to have massive bad debts and massive crashes. in. So a modest increase in the official interest rate to say 1.5% would be good for bank margins. Which is what we're going to get. Yeah, I mean. that's right. So, Brian, just a quickie regarding an early comment on the Feb 3 podcast. Even with house prices increasing, isn't this offset by the lower total quantity of property sales, fewer credit cards, less holiday spending, and overall increase in savings over the same period? I recall some reports of 800,000 fewer credit cards and average saving rates going down, going from 2% to 22% in the first year of the pandemic and lockdowns. What's the evidence for the comment? I don't know where to start looking to work it out for myself. Keep up the good work and thanks for everything. Um, yes, oh, they also, he also says, given how much everyone is opening their wallets and purses, where's the press stud manufacturing ETF for me to pour my fortune oh, into? Very good. Very good one, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> with every, press studs. All, with all payments going electronic, Brian, I don't think that press no, studs are going to take off somehow. Not a good idea. Uh, yeah, look, people are going off credit cards, no doubt about it. I mean, young people, my children... I don't think any of my kids have got a credit card. Have any of yours? No, it's all just debit card. Yeah, they don't, want to, go, debit they don't want to go into debt. No, yeah. and I think, fine, that's that's very good. I mean, of course, a lot of them are going for buy now, pay later, yeah. after pay, which is another form of debt. Um, it is. And PayPal shares tanked last week when the results came out because they haven't got growth. And the comment was that there's been too much capital thrown at payments technology sector. So there's too many players like PayPal, Afterpay, Zip, Crypto, competing for the same payments market share. And um, so I, I think that be careful being exposed to any form of new payment because you're taking on the big banks, which as we saw with the Commonwealth Bank is still dominant, even though they're making far less money out of credit cards than they used to. John says, quick question, obviously not personal advice. A few years ago, a mate of mine bought a speculative stock called SAS, S-A-S. It is now delisted. Does he need any documents to claim the capital loss in his tax return or does he just claim it in the financial year the stock was delisted? Just claim it in the, in the year your stock was delisted? Uh, I think technically you've actually got to um, uh, crystallise the loss because if something, if something delists, that's not a sale because you can still sell a private unlisted share. So, I mean, the tax man is not going to do a massive audit on you if you write it off to zero at the listing. But technically, you need the statement from the liquidator or transfer of shares for a dollar to someone else to formally sell the stock. But I would suggest you only do that after you've, uh, when you need to crystallise the capital loss because you've suddenly sold a few CSL shares or you've had some boomer capital gain and you're managing your capital gains tax bill. All right. Um, David says, can you please provide us novice punters a simple method of dissecting a company's balance sheet to tell really how much cash they have and how much they may spend or have in the coming year? As you say, it's all about the cash. Well, so it is. Um, the company's annual report has uh, three uh, tables in a row at the beginning of the financial section. The first one is the profit and loss account. Mm -hmm. Second one is the balance sheet. The third one is the cash flow account. So um, uh, when I'm looking at an annual report, I skip past the first two, go straight to the cash account, and I look, I look at what they've um, achieved in cash flow, and I look at how much they've got in the bank. 
But the other way to do that is, or the other way to look at how much they've got cash they've got is to look on the balance sheet for um, uh, for uh, cash. There's, there's a there's a line, cash yep. it back, cash it back. Yeah. Um, and uh, but you need also to look at um, short term liabilities, which yes. should be. Um, which uh, there's current liabilities, non-current liabilities. Current liabilities are those that are due in less than 12 months. Um, so uh, you probably need to offset the cash at bank uh, with the current liabilities. I always look at the in the balance sheet at the accumulated losses as well. Is this a company that's blown up hundreds of millions of dollars over the years? So accumulated losses, and then you, where you don't want to get caught is a company with heavy cash burn doing dilutive discounted capital raisings without having a generous cornerstone or founder backing in retail. That's when you really get done, uh, when you're suddenly being asked to, to tip in lots of cash when there's risk and there aren't big boys to help you out. My favourite example of a, of a cash burn situation that turned around is the um, Swiss, the vitamins company. A mate of mine, Trevor O'Hoy, was the chairman. Uh, the CEO was needed to be replaced and was all about to go broke and Goldman Sachs, the lender, was about to take control and they raised a few million dollars. Trevor agreed to work for shares, become the executive chair for shares. And suddenly all these Chinese sales just came in. They closed their US division and they sold the business 15 months later for 1.6 billion. And Trevor made 60 million because he rescued a company in a cash crisis, stepped up, turned it around and sold out. So you can make lots of money in a quick period of time when a company is in crisis. You've just got to pick the right bet and have the genuine turnaround story uh, looking yeah. at you in the right industry at the right time. Sal says, hi, Alan. Really loving the podcast since the divorce, especially with Stephen Main and James Thompson as your regular guest. More of Stephen, please. Sorry, James. <laughs> now, it'll be, it'll be equal... Equal time. Equal time, Stephen and James. Speaking of divorce, my question is around shares that are significantly underwater. Hold them or hope things improve or sell and use the pain as a lesson. Um, a general example would be the bidder shares crypto innovators ETF that invests not in crypto but in companies exposed to crypto. Exposed to crypto. It's down 46% since floating last year. Thanks and be <laughs> please be gentle. Um, well, I mean... Don't invest in crypto would be my first advice. Um, well, then, then just, again, on, just on the crypto, before we get on the, the topic in general, um, if you invest in the crypto, if you invest in the crypto innovators ETF, what you're really doing is investing in Bitcoin because those companies, um, uh, the companies that are in the ETF are basically, um, their, their price, their share price is driven by the price of Bitcoin. And... Um, you know, anyway, so but it's down so by 46% since floating. So, yeah, well, they, Another just, they just picked a, uh, one of the regular wrong peaks. times to look. Yeah, it was just one yeah. of they picked one of the peaks of Bitcoin and yeah. down it went. But it's a trillion dollars of value supposedly in crypto. I don't out of nothing, can't go any higher. So, be wary of any latter day snake oil salesman selling you crypto when already a trillion dollars has been created. Hmm. Wait for it to go back to 100 billion and then get in. But on the capital gains, as I said earlier, just just uh, well, I, I often hang on to a small amount of shares in a dog to try and make money if there's a capital raising. So you, you keep five hundred bucks worth, but that's only for regular ASX stocks, not ETFs. 
um, but otherwise just time it with your with your, um, think, your but, tax. No, but the other thing is, well, yeah, but the question is, do you sell out when the share's gone down or do you uh, or do you hang on, hope things improve? Well, the answer is uh, it depends why the shares are down. You have to, you know, you've got to make a decision as to why they're down. I mean, if the company's, something's changed and the company's in trouble in some way or they've, they've made a mistake or they've done something wrong, then maybe it is time to sell. Mm. But I'd also be disciplined, like the stop-loss order, as soon as you've, you're down 20%, I reckon that's actually not a bad thing because a lot of people hang on for sentimental reasons and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And when getting out, if you're not in a rush, I often put the sell order on at 10 to 15% above market. So I say, this is a dog. Uh, I'm down 46%. If I can get out only losing 60%, at least I haven't got out at the, bo- at the bottom. Yeah. Um, is this our last question? Yep. Yes. Okay. Rob, it's your turn. Uh Recent media reports have confirmed that buying IPOs is rarely successful long-term for the issues uh, for the issues a retail punter is likely to get aboard. To avoid the lipstick on a pig presentation, i.e. NXL, Newix, how long would you suggest retail investors should wait to see the real situation before considering buying on market, e.g. 18 months or three years? So, look... Rob, I do agree that latter-day big IPOs have not been very good for investors because with private equity in the market, you know, the things that get floated are only things that can't be sold to private equity or can't be sold to some corporate buyer. And often they're, they're over-pumped, and that's what Newix was. So Newix floated at $5.31 in December 20. Macquarie made hundreds of millions of dollars out of it. The shares, you know, everyone said, oh, they've had a few bumps and now they're going to turn around. Well, since since January, the stock's down from 282 to 151. So it's, they've had a profit warning and it's an even bigger dog now. They're facing class actions, extra legal expenses, yet Macquarie's hanging in there saying they're a supportive client and they've still got 30%. So I don't know. But uh, there's been lots of good ones. Dicker Data. I mean, Osnet and Sydney Airport are both two floats that finished up well with takeovers recently, albeit they were floated many, many years ago. But in this environment, I'd be, be wary of the big floats because of private equity. But as to when you buy, it's just like valuing any stock. Once it's listed, it's just a, you know, when, um, pick and choose. I, I think IPO is like uh, buying an apartment off the plan. You're not paying a market price. You're paying What you're paying is what the vendors vendors want you to pay and occasionally the vendors and their and their uh, investment bank advisors get the pricing wrong and they'll underprice it but that's I don't know 10% of the time yeah, not many it's not, it's not good stag most profits. of the time they overprice it I mean I over the years I had some great floats like you know I remember Optus was a good one I had I remember Platinum I floated at 5 and I got out at 8 on the first day um, you know, Woolies and CBA, there was some, there was Cochlear, you know, there were some crackers. But recently, you know, what, Medibank? At least with Medibank, I think there was a 10 cent discount for retail. So whenever government's involved, they often try and do the political thing and charge those more t- than retail. Government's usually underpriced. Go, if, yeah, look at the seller. If, you've, if you're buying off private equity, I hello Meyer, don't yeah. go near it. Because you know what private equity did with Meyer? They, they, back-ended the lease liabilities and didn't disclose it in the prospectus. It was the most one of the most disgraceful things I've seen in a float. And Maya's been lumbered with lease liabilities ever since. So, yeah, do not buy off private equity or Macquarie. 
I mean, Macquarie also gave us Boat Long Year, which has been at three or four billion of equity lost, and and UX is now you know more than five or six hundred million lost. Don't buy off Macquarie. So we have to end there. It's been a long, longer than usual episode this week. We've Fourteen questions and three thousand words of text to read out. So we that was a record. I reckon we've never had a short straw quite like that. No, it was good. It wasn't. It was perhaps the long straw today. The long straw. <laughs> That's right. Let's cap it. No more than ten questions next time, Greg. Thanks for listening, everyone, to today's episode of the Money Cafe. Uh, we'll be back with James Thompson next week. So send in a question for him or me, and we'll answer it next week. Send it into the Money Cafe at EurekaReport.com.au. Until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, editor in chief at Eureka Report, and I'm Stephen Main, and I'll see you in a fortnight. 